But good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew. I'm the associate pastor here at Harvest. Uh, this morning's service is what we're calling a family gathering, so it's going to have a little bit of a different flavor to it. If you're new, it's actually a great time to be here because you'll get to see some of the inner workings of our church. So just so you know what to expect, I'm going to be uh, preaching this morning, which will include me presenting to you how we're going to be choosing some new deacons. Uh, we're going to then pause and enjoy some pastries, top off our coffee, and then after that we'll have Pastor Greg come up. He's going to be giving us kind of a, a year in review um, of 2022 and what the future holds for us. Joel Richter will also share some annual budget numbers from last year than uh, what 2023 financially looks for our church. But as we do this, I want to start with a test, first of all. Yeah, exactly. You came to church and you're getting a test. Uh, it's a different test. It's a word association test. Maybe you've heard of them. It's when someone, usually a psychologist, will propose a word to you. And what they want you to do is, quick as you can, give back to them whatever pops into your head. You know, like happiness, ice cream, sunshine, longing, life, busy, rest, fleeting. See, you've learned something about me, haven't you? I need more ice cream breaks. <laughs> the point of the test, though, becomes quickly obvious. It's trying to elicit your guttural response. What is your true belief on something? It, it wants to get quickly beneath the veneer to what you really think, which you really believe. So I have a slightly different, uh, a modified word association test for all of you. Don't worry, it's, it's simple, just two prompts, okay? What I want you to do is think of the first word that comes into your head, but, but comes into your head from your gut, from deep within you, to the prompt, what is the church? What popped into your head? Maybe it was one of our kind of classical metaphors. It's a, it's a family. It's the bride. It's a body, a temple. Maybe it was something different, like the church is hope, it's acceptance, it's home. Maybe it was something negative, though. Maybe it was expectation or letdown, obligation. I hope not. I hope not. Okay, one more question for you. This is similar to the first, but slightly different, okay? So what is the first word pops in your head when I ask, what does the church do? Did you think of something like disciple, like serve? Kind of, again, kind of something classical we would say, put in a mission statement. Or was it something else? Like the church loves, it cares. Again, hopefully not so, but maybe it was something negative, like the church hurts, it demands. Irregardless, your, your guttural response to those questions obviously says much of how you view the church, but it also can say much of how you view God and what his purpose is for you. I would imagine also that your answers have, have changed over time, have they not? What the church is and does right now is different from what it has 
and will do in the years to come. Now, we've been kind of going through the book of Acts over the past several months. And what is hopefully happening is that your beliefs and views on what the church is and what the church does should be coming into a more beautiful and full completion. We're seeing firsthand what the church should be, what it hopes to be, but what it really is. If you've got rosy colored glasses on, you're looking at the church through Acts and seeing it's actually filled with broken and fallen people. The church can be rough. For the pessimist in the room, the book of Acts shows the infinite optimism that the word is active. It's on the move. The church is growing. Souls are being saved. Faith, hope, love is winning the day. Now, as Acts hopefully does that work on your soul, it's going to be rubbing up against the guttural beliefs we stated in our association test. And I say this and I, I think of I think of my family. When I was in college, my parents divorced. And through that process, many of the people in their church that they attended, they, they distanced themselves from my parents and they excluded them from teams that they had served on. My parents didn't receive the love and acceptance they thought they would have from those fellow Jesus believers. And through that hard process of divorce, the attitude of those select people in their church, that attitude of, you no longer measure up, seemed to be God saying to them, you no longer measure up. One of my parents still doesn't attend church, nor seems to have an active faith. And I can't help but wonder if the pain caused by the bride has changed their view of the groom. So this morning, I want to pause. I want to pause our march through the book of Acts and talk about one way Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, you can turn there if you'd like. We'll be jumping through the chapters. I want to take a look at at the book of Ephesians and see what it is showing us. Because I know I'll not be able to change largely what you believe the church is and does, but I hope to leave an impression nonetheless that challenges and encourages you. So the other day I was, uh, I was trying to be a good husband and I decided to clean our stovetop, you know, the gas range in the house. It was bad. You know, splatters of burnt sauce, dried out noodles, uh, grease, grime, sticky grossness. But under all of that yuck was the pure white finish. And as I looked at it, I couldn't help but think I was actually looking at myself. You know, I know I've been washed pure by the blood of the lamb. That before God, I stand uncondemned. I wear the righteousness of Christ. I can enter behind the veil but I'm still marred with brokenness, with sinfulness, chronically doing what I don't want to do. Ephesians recognizes this. That's why in it, Paul tells us we were dead in our sins and trespasses. He begins much of the book that way. We individually all have that same problem. But as I looked at that stovetop, I could have equally been looking at the church. 
sections that are clean and beautiful, and others that need deep washing. So Ephesians 5, you can turn there. Ephesians 5, verse 25, it tells us this. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So I may have taken soap and a rag to clean the surface. Christ took his own blood and the cross to present to himself the church in absolute purity. So if there is any beauty in the church, it is going to be through and by him. Titus 2.14 tells us he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Paul presents, however, a collective problem we have as Gentiles. Now, the Bible uses the word Gentiles to refer to everyone that is outside the family of Israel, anyone that is not in that Old Testament God-chosen people group. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12, flip back just a page, it says this, At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, without God in the world. The you in the verse is all of us. It's you and me, the Gentiles. We are Gentiles. Paul tells us we were excluded. We were foreigners. He did not give us the Abrahamic. He did not give us the Mosaic. He did not give us the Davidic covenant. We were not part of the family. We were without hope. We stood outside in the shadows. In contrast to this, Paul says of the Israelites, Romans 9, 4, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. This reality of exclusion, it doesn't really mean much to us, though. We live after Christ has come. We were born into the opportunity of salvation through faith. We enter the redemptive timeline of God when the division between Jew and Gentile has been made null. This wasn't the case forever, though. Imagine, if you will, a jail, a prison. I had a family member incarcerated for a number of years. And when I went to visit him, his state of exclusion from the general citizenship, it was quite palpable. He was not free. He was held in custody. He did not have access to the blessings I did. He did not have access to the rights I had. He was a foreigner to life on the outside. In our existence, though, a jail is just a tiny spot on the map. It's a little point of exclusion amidst the rest of our country, of inclusion, access to rights, blessings as citizens. But in the spiritual realm, though, the jail is not confined to a building outside of town. It's everywhere. Everywhere beyond the perimeter of the Israelite people. Before Christ, this is reality. 
for the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. But despite this exclusion, this separation, we read back in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me there. Chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And why did Jesus do this? Verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. The church, therefore, is the togetherness of Jew and Gentile. It is a new creation of union where all have access to the family, access to the benefits of citizenship, the blessing of being sons and daughters through the equally available Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 11, he gives this beautiful image of an olive tree as a family of God. He calls us olive branches, wild ones, and we are wild. (laughs) But that God, by his love, has grafted us into the olive tree, his church. Now, in these verses in Ephesians, if you notice, I underline, underline the overwhelming theme that Christ is in all and through all and by all. It is quickly recognizable that the fullness of Christ is at work throughout. Now, this reality that the Gentiles are a part of the family of God, Paul will tell us again in chapter 3, verse 6. You can jump down there because we're going to start kind of moving through chapter 3 now. He says, chapter 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul then goes on to tell us in the next couple verses that it is his ministry to share that truth to all. And in verse 14, he provides for us his response, which should be our response as well. So listen to this closely. Verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Sometimes the greatest response to the beauty of Christ is to simply kneel before the Father and reflect on the love that surpasses knowledge. 
I pray, though, that it also drives us to see the global view of what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit is doing. Amidst all the travels of Paul and Acts, going to this place and then that, with this person, then that person, it's easy to lose sight that we are talking about the acts of the Holy Spirit. We are talking about the word going forth to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, starting faith communities, birthing the church. We're talking about a revolution that is sweeping the world, a revolution of light and life, life that conquers death, offers hope, defines truth, saves souls. We're talking about the awesome power of God working through broken, fallen men and women like you and me to redeem the world back to himself. And what shrouds all of this work, what envelops it, what gives it power is Jesus and his helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus' work on the cross completed many things, one of which is the creation of the church, of all of God's elect people swept up into the hope of seeing and participating in God's masterpiece of love. So amidst the church being a body, temple, a bride, these singular nouns we use as metaphors, the church is much more. The church is the perfection of Christ, the fullness of him. It's also that stovetop with all of its bits of grease and grime that Christ is actively cleaning and purifying. And one day this process of sanctification will result in glorification. As John says in Revelation, as he is witnessing through a vision the new heavens and the new earth. Then one of the seven angels, verse 10, this angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. This bride of the Lamb, this new Jerusalem, is the perfected church, the citizenry of all the saints, and it is this glory that awaits us. And if it is such, how should we regard our time? here on earth. Back in Ephesians, Paul urges us, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in God, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We share a common mission, a charge from Christ to be, a, to be light and life to a dark and dying world. We begin that work here the body of Christ. And this morning, I want to challenge, challenge us. As a body, specifically, I want to challenge us in a calling I believe some of you have. 
In the family of Christ, Scripture presents two key offices or roles in the church, that of elders and deacons. The elders play the role of spiritual shepherds and the deacons the role of practical service. This morning, I come to you asking for your participation in the process of nominating possible deacons to help meet the many practical needs of our church. To do this, I'm going to spell out exactly what a deacon is, their qualifications, what their role is, and how this whole nomination process is going to work. Let's first start, though, where we see deacons come up in Scripture, which will be Acts 6 for us. If you want to flip there, we'll start reading in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. This provides us some context for how deacons came to be about. Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve, twelve apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen and six other men. Verse 6, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, the Greek word for deacon, it's not mentioned in this specific text, but this is truly where deacons are first seen in Scripture. And they come about because there's friction in the church. A rift is brewing between Greek Jews and native Hebrew Jews because the Greeks were not being uh, given their daily meals that were being provided by the church. So the elders appropriately decide, this is not a task we need to step into. Instead, they go to the congregation and commission them to select seven men. And here's our first set of qualifications. These men are of good reputation, and they are full of spirit and wisdom. Verse 5 then says, this proposal pleased the whole company, which I believe Luke stresses here to show it, there was agreement throughout. Everyone thought this was a good God-honoring solution. So the congregation got to work. They chose Stephen, six other men. The apostles then confirmed them, laid hands upon them, and put them to service. We're going to use that same format. The elders and staff are asking to choose among you individuals who are of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom. Now, I know you likely have a million questions. Let me provide some more information and I'll hopefully answer some of those. First, let's flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see further qualifications for deacons. Deacons like mine must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, nor addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. Now I have these qualifications listed up on the screen. And uh, what we'll do is maybe just have slowly go through them all and then land on the uh, last set of qualifications. 
up on the screen, you'll see I have like a, just a short descriptor next to the individual qualification. And of course, much could be said on each one of these. I trust, however, that we as a body can kind of collectively understand what is being said here. If you don't understand something, though, ask a friend. I want to highlight a couple of these qualifications, qualifications that may involve some controversy. Set the record straight as to our church's stance on this list. Harvest Community Church believes the qualification of husbands of only one wife does not preclude a divorced person from serving as a deacon. A helpful rephrasing of this text is a one-woman man, which articulates the essence of this qualification, that the deacon be a faithful spouse in the God-ordained marriage union of one man and one woman. So let me say again, a divorced person could serve as a deacon. This interpretational stance also demonstrates our church's belief that the list of qualifications is not exclusively, uh, excuse me, is not exhaustively essential. By this, we mean that each element need not be actually realized for the qualifications to be met. Therefore, although the list of 1 Timothy includes husband of one wife, manager of their children and their household, it does not require the deacon to be male, married, and have children. Harvest Community Church believes women, single individuals, and those married without children can still serve as deacons. The additional qualifications are to provide clarity to those in such life situations. Harvest Community Church believes this text presentation as written to the male gender is not exclusively prescriptive. Which leads me to the next question you may have, in which I somewhat answered, can women be deacons? Our church's stance is yes, women can be deacons. Even though the list of qualifications is addressed to the male gender, we do not interpret that to mean the position is exclusive to men, but rather it is simply the gender Paul uses to deliver his message through. There are specific reasons for this interpretation. They're supported by scripture, and I'm happy to share those, but we're going to kind of keep moving forward for now. Scripture presents a very high standard for deacons. It's not our expectation that deacons to meet these in perfection, rather to be above reproach. Being above reproach requires consistent evidence of the trait being lived out. Now, you'll notice in that list in 1 Timothy, there's nothing that talks about a deacon's hard skills, like they're a good business person, or they work well with their hands, or they have some special knowledge. The list is about heart attitude, personal character. And it's that same perspective that Harvest elders have towards deacons. Now, the next question you might have is, what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? An elder is a spiritual shepherd of the church. A deacon is a servant of practical needs. A close look at the qualifications for the two roles shows a majority of overlap. One difference, though, is the requirement for elders to be able to teach. And this teaching requisite highlights the greatest difference between the two roles, that of the positions tasking, what they are actually doing. Elders are to focus on the ministry of the word, prayer, teaching, preaching, exhorting, tending the flock. Deacons fulfill the suite of practical needs within a church beyond those elder 
responsibilities. This does not mean deacons do not teach or pray or exhort others, but that is specifically the elders' ministry within the church. Deacons fulfill the many needs beyond that, church administration, organization, function. So what are the responsibilities of a deacon? First and foremost, all the deacons share the same responsibility of being peacekeepers in our church. They are the shock absorbers of our congregation. And if we look at Acts 6, that's the first thing they do. They step into a hot situation and they start de-escalating. So generally speaking, deacons maintain unity and organization in the church. Now, within that overarching responsibility, we envision some specific roles as well. These areas of coverage we're going to show here on the screen, they're created by the staff, brainstorming all the tasks we would love to have deacons serve in, and then we kind of work just to sift them down into what seemed like well-formed, organized areas. So they're not written in stone, they can be adapted. But I want to just pop those up there. First, deacon of fellowship. We envision this person overseeing and coordinating our gatherings, picnics and social special events. Next, we have a deacon of missions. For this person or persons, we, we hope that they would lead our missions team. They'd coordinate and partner with our missions overseas. They would help us with short-term missions, and they would encourage us to have much of a, a missional mind. Next, we have deacon of member care. This is a large one. So maybe this needs to be broken into a couple different people, a couple different areas. But this person or persons would focus on the special needs of our church, visiting those that are sick, widows. They would coordinate help, people who need repair, home maintenance, food delivery after having a baby, or maybe an injury or death in the family. Next, we have a deacon of community engagement. We hope that they would... Uh, maintain current relationships with people we have, like track, pathways, family promise, and that they would also help us find new ways for family and community outreach. Next, we have a deacon of finance. Uh, we're hoping that person will lead our financial team, partner with the treasurer, work to make sure we're being financially wise, frugal, and good stewards of God's resources. And lastly, I'll put up here a deacon of facilities. We've got an incredible building. We've got an incredible grounds. It takes a lot of work, though. We need a person to coordinate and oversee all of that work. Now, again, these categories are not set in stone. They likely could be better organized. They could be added to. But this hopefully provides some broad strokes of areas of ministry we hope to have people begin to serve in. Now, what do you do? Okay, I'm asking you to look around the room. Who do you believe meets the qualifications? Who would be a blessing to our church as a deacon? And young people too, high schoolers, middle schoolers, as you're sitting out there, you're involved in this too. You're a part of our church. You are heirs to the promises. So who do you look up to in our church? Who is someone you think is qualified to help our church grow? And I was serious about considering yourself too. You can nominate yourself in this process, which to some seems funny, but pause for a moment. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 3, when Paul first addresses elders. He says this, If any man aspires to the office of elder, I believe the same posture applies to deacons. So if you desire to step into a more active role to champion area of service, nominate yourself. If you're not qualified, it will be the job of the elders to shepherd you through those conversations. 
So consider the men and women in our body. This first step of nominating possible deacons will take place over the next two weeks. If you have a person in mind that you want to nominate, take the opportunity to tell them. Go to that person. Say, hey, I think you'd be an incredible blessing to our church. I intend to nominate you. You don't have to do that, but it's very it's encouraged. Either way, once you've decided to nominate someone, tell any staff member or elder or we have two female ministry leaders. So that group of people would be Pastor Greg, myself, Pastor uh, Matt, our church administrator, Alyssa Higginson. We've got some elders, Gary Smith, Scott Rose, John Eddy, and then our women's ministry director, Kristen Carlson, children's ministry director, Bonnie Weberly. So go to any of those 10 people. Tell them you'd like to nominate so-and-so. You can tell them in person today, you could tell them over the phone in the week. You could tell them by email, whatever works for you. You can do that this morning, whenever, next Sunday, week after. This step, again, will run for two weeks. Now, that staff, member, elder, ministry leader, what they're going to do is they're going to confirm with you. They're gonna, so you believe this person meets the qualifications. Hopefully, you're saying, oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> now, they're going to ask you if you've told that person did you tell them that you wanted to nominate them? And the point for that is we want to hear what was the feedback. Was that person like, wow, that's incredible that you would say that. Yeah, I'll perfectly consider that. Or were they like, no, I have no interest in being a deacon. We want to know that information. So to recap, consider yourself and those among us. If you'd like to nominate someone, take the relationship building opportunity. Tell them how you view them. Then go to an elder or staff member or ministry leader, they're going to ask you those few questions, and then you're done. So this process is the next two weeks, okay? From that point on, the elders and staff, ministry leaders, we're going to begin an evaluation process, and we're excited to establish new deacons at our church. Know this too, the staff and elders are also looking at people to nominate. We're all doing this together. Now, a few thoughts as we conclude. Maybe you see the areas of responsibility and you just, it's too broad. It's too broad. Like take deacon of member care. They cover a lot of stuff. Visitation, coordinating helps, home repair, setting up a meal train. That's a lot. Maybe you're thinking, hey, I can champion one of those areas, something a little more narrow. That's fine. We know everyone is in a different season, has different capabilities and capacities. We want to work together to find a good fit. Or maybe you want to partner with someone. As deacons that work together over an area. Current pastors and elders, just so you know, we cannot be deacons as well. We're, we're eldering. We're being those spiritual shepherds. I'd like to also say that being a deacon does not place you at a higher tier in our church. It's not a cool kid club. Being a deacon, deacon is being committed to service. It's a role of humility. It's about putting others' needs in front of your own. It's not a position of power or ego. And if you nominate someone that ultimately does not become a deacon, know there are a variety of reasons that that could take place. This process of selection should be one, though, that we're excited to honor people through and see the body grow. Not like a junior high game of basketball when team captains pick their teams one by one and the last person picked knows they're the worst. It's not what we're doing here. We're all together on the disciple-building mission Christ has given us in a unifying goal. We all play a part. One role is not superior to the other. 
So I want to conclude with this passage from 1 Corinthians to cement the right attitude that we should have as we move forward. Feel free to close your eyes as I read this passage. Now, there are different gifts, gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all given one Spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? That is, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Let this be our attitude as we move forward. If you have any questions about deacons, it would benefit everyone hearing. We'll have a question and answer time after our annual update and review in just a little bit. We're now going to transition into a time of discussing our annual update. Pastor Greg's going to highlight some big things that took place in 2022. Uh, we're going to talk about the future finances as well. Before we do, let's grab some pastries, though. They're going to be coming out. We're going to top off our coffees and uh, maybe consider a person for the role of deacon. Let me pray, though, real quick. Sorry, oh, people are helping with pastries. Let me pray as we continue. Father, the, the body of Christ is a mysterious thing. That's how Paul described it time and time again in Ephesians. It's a mysterious thing, but it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful because of you, Jesus. It's beautiful because it is one bathed in the purifying work of the cross. I pray that we would not simply see it as is those nouns, those singular nouns we talked about, a body, a family. Those are true, but the church is far more than that. It is 
as John in Revelation tried to describe this beautiful new Jerusalem, clear as crystal. Holy Spirit, move in us now. Move in us to see that we might play a specific role, a new role, a different role in your church, but that we all together should be participating. So show us that road forward. Move in us as you desire. Father, we love you and we thank you for this church and the blessing it is to all of us and hopefully a light to the canvas area around us. We pray this in Jesus, your holy name. Amen.